Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series in 1 Timothy, Living the Truth, with a message titled, Warnings for Pastors. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 to 25, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. begin by telling the story of something that happened to me quite a few years ago, but I, you know, I still think about it occasionally, and I chuckle, and I also think about the pain of leadership. I was a good bit younger then. My hair had not a hint of gray in it. I sported a very healthy mustache in those days, and from a distance, you would think I looked a good deal like the premier of my province. Now, remember that because that part is going to be a part of the story. You know, cameras for filming were not common back then, and I was involved in making a video to be shown on our church screen as part of our fall kickoff to be shown at the beginning of September. It was to be a welcome to our church video. You know, a member of our church worked for a news organization in the city, and he said, hey, pastor, I think I can get the use of one of our news organization's cameras. I said, are you sure that's legal? And he said, well, I have to ask. And sure enough, he got permission, and so we were set up. We had the cameraman, we had another person with a boom mic, and we went out to a local park to film, and that's where it got funny. You know, in those days, the premier of our province was embroiled in a scandal, had every tongue in the province wagging. And as I was being filmed in the park with a big sign of the news organization on the camera, I noticed out of the corner of my eye a man making a beeline for me. He looked angry. He walked across in front of the camera, and he was right in my face, and it took him very little time to get to me. And then his eyes opened in surprise. I was not the premier after all, but he was still angry. I explained what I was up to, and he said, okay, and then blasted me anyway about what a crook the premier of the province actually was. And I said, but I'm not the premier. I didn't even vote for him. But he wasn't done, and he let me have it anyway. (laughs) You know, I still chuckle about that. It was funny. Even while it was happening, it was funny. But the event caused me to reflect and think. Being a leader, especially a political leader, is no easy thing. I don't know why people do it at all. I mean, how could this premier of ours, I thought, even when his life in politics is over, carry on with life? You know, would he ever be able to go out for a cup of coffee without someone making a beeline for his table and giving him a piece of his mind? You know, in the case of the man who accosted me, he told me he wanted to punch me in the mouth. And then he wandered off without even saying he was sorry. I mention this here because we're going to be talking about warnings to pastors, especially when they sin. You know, pastors are leaders among the people of God, and so the expectations that they shoulder are greater than that of politicians. You know, for their task is to ensure that the church of Jesus Christ is not only pure, but also that it's a beacon for the gospel to the watching world. So let's start by reading our passage, which is 1 Timothy 5, 19 to 25. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands or take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. 
so also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Now, when you read the entire Bible, you find a great many principles about leadership. But you also find that there's no place that gives any leader absolute power. There are always checks on leadership. Do you remember the sin of King David and how Nathan the prophet came to him and charged him with sin and demanded his repentance? In any other country in the ancient Near East at that time, If anyone tried to confront a king in that way, that person would have been executed without mercy. Kings were seen to have the power of God, but not so in Israel. The king was called upon to obey the law, and furthermore, the king was subject to the words of the prophets. The same is true of elders in local churches, pastors. They don't lead as if they're a dictator. However, the Bible demands they be held in honor, and that one is to submit to their authority. And so, how does one hold this balance? You know, our passage today deals with how pastors should be treated when they sin. If sin is found, what should be done? So let's start with a word of warning. A congregation, or a board, or a bishop in some denominations, or somebody which holds pastors accountable must hear this opening warning. Never entertain unfounded charges against an elder or a pastor. Look again at verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So that principle goes all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy in which, in the law, it took two witnesses to convict someone. And the reason is simple. It protects the accused from unjust charges and it brings order to the process. In other words, you can't convict someone on the basis of hearsay, on the basis of rumor, on the basis of personal dislike for that person. A charge brought against any believer is a serious business, and it should be regarded as such. Let's begin in Matthew 18. Remember, Jesus taught that when someone, anyone in the church, sinned against someone else in the church, the person who is sinned against must first engage in a one-to-one encounter. That is, when someone sins against you, you're not permitted to gossip. You don't tell it to everyone who is going to listen, get people on your side, then confront the other. You know, that in itself is a sin. The second stage then is to bring someone else along. In other words, before a matter is brought to the church for judgment and for discipline, the matter has passed through a number of stages. You know, in that sense, pastors, like everyone else, are members of a congregation and they should be treated in the same fashion. Gossiping because you don't think a pastor's friendly enough, or because he's treated you without caring for you enough, is a matter that's not to be dealt with by the church, rather one-on-one. Now, a charge brought against an elder is more serious than a charge brought against someone else in the congregation, simply because it can and does affect the entire church. But there's something more. We all need to acknowledge it. Being a leader makes one open to criticism and to charges of error that if you've never been a leader, it's difficult to comprehend. Charges are made, and when they are, so many people's lives are impacted. And the point is that elders bear this burden. And the impulse here in this passage is to protect the elder from accusation that's unjustified. It demands that we as God's people don't engage in gossip or unjust criticism or mean-spiritedness, but that we bless those whom God has called upon to lead. And in case you missed it, we're called to bless elders, but we're called upon 
not to allow elders to live in sinful behavior. In other words, we're not to judge them for style issues, but on issues of right and wrong. But before we go on, I think we must deal with the issue that's prominent in our day. It's pastoral abuse or pastoral sexual misconduct. I fear I'm going to say some things here that are going to infuriate some, but here goes. First, the nature of sexual misconduct, adultery, and even abuse of authority is often one-on-one. That is, there can't be two or three witnesses. What is one to do if it's a matter of he said or she said? You know, I think as a part of the investigation, some things should be established. Was the pastor in the habit of meeting with that woman one-on-one? When did these meetings happen? And who was informed that they were happening? And if a pastor is meeting behind closed doors with someone of the opposite sex, real explanations are required and a full explanation must be given. And then, as is often the case, is the pastor in a habit of meeting with other women? So I hope you see that in a little while with very serious study, one should be able to ascertain if this is simply a one-off accusation or if it's a part of troubling behavior. And then that's the place to start. If there is a charge, is this matter attested by others, or is this person acting on their own behalf? A godly elder, when someone charges him with something, will say, please bring the charge to the right group of people and let them determine. All right, let's move on. Let's skip verse 20 for now. We'll get back to it. Let's go to verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging doing nothing from partiality. See, I don't know how you read this verse and not pause for a moment and consider the serious nature of the thing. In the presence of the Father and of the Son and of the elect angels, meaning those angels that didn't fall with Lucifer. You see, it might be that there's pressure not to reprove sinning elders. And so Paul has to explain to Timothy that the rule to keep sinning elders accountable for evil behavior is indeed a solemn obligation. God demands it. He's watching. He calls the host of heaven to observe how to handle charges against elders. Timothy can't lock himself in a study and claim he's got no time for this. It's almost as if judgment of a sinning elder is a foretaste of the final judgment when all secrets are removed. There will be no secret sins. The thought should be, well, it's overwhelming. Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld focus on the use of expositional teaching of the Bible a verse-by-verse, in-depth discovery of Scripture, allowing the Word of God to speak for itself, understanding its context, eternal relevance for today, tomorrow, and for the life of every believer. Sarah wrote to say, I so appreciate this teaching by Dr. John Newfeld. This message has come at a very important time. I am grateful for the wisdom and insight. And we're grateful for all of our listeners, but also that God's timing is perfect and that the Word of God taught faithfully speaks directly into the life of every believer. And don't forget this month that Dr. John's newest book, Heaven and Hell, is being made available for free simply for the asking. So call us today to request your copy or to make a ministry gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. The key to handling a charge against an elder is impartiality. 
I think that means that you judge a charge against an elder on the evidence of witnesses and on the basis of the Word of God, not opinions, but facts, and God's judgment stands. But what happens if an elder is found guilty of sinning? What then? See, I find it fascinating that when speaking of church discipline in Matthew 18, Jesus seems intent to keep matters of discipline as private as they can be. Only in the case of someone who adamantly refuses to repent are sins to be made public. Not so with an elder. God places them in a separate category. And by the way, this is why you should pray all the more for your pastor. There's a warfare going on. But it also reminds us that if you let yourself think about it, well, it's frightening to be an elder. And so let's now go to verse 20, in which we will see God wants the sins and the discipline of an elder to be made public. Verse 20, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Now, please notice, one does not make all sins public. There are all manner of sins that do not demand public action. They are identified. The pastor is humble. The matter is resolved. God's people continue to be blessed. And there are sins that persist. That is, the elder refuses to repent. So let's say, you know, it's a case of the abuse of authority, bullying some people. The pastor is reminded of the attitude of Christ, but still he doesn't budge. In cases like this, it's required that discipline become public. And this may seem surprising to some. So let me give you an example. A believer commits adultery. He repents. Perhaps some elders are involved in discipline. The wife is told there are tears that are shed. But to the most part, no one knows because no one else needs to. The repentance is real and lasting, and we find that God's grace can forgive and heal and restore and reconcile. And it brings a sense of holiness. But now consider this different case. An elder commits adultery, and suddenly it's a matter for the entire church. Well, why? Well, Paul says, so that the rest may stand in fear. So who are the rest? Are they the rest of the elders? Well, yes, no doubt. But perhaps it's also the rest of God's people. You see, if elders are by their holiness supposed to be an example to follow, their sin is to be an example as well. I know that's scary. It's supposed to be. It reminds us how much God demands holiness of his church. See, there are reasons why a church might not do this. They think if the sins are made public, what will become of the faith of those who are either won to Christ by this pastor or has been deeply helped by him? And more so, what will we think of the watching community who might say, ah, you see, you know, the Christians are no different from the rest of us. But it's precisely because of this reaction that the sins of the elders must be made public. The watching world must know that it does not require a secular journalist to uncover secret hidden sins, but rather the church of Jesus Christ cares far more about this kind of thing than the watching world does. And so we can say this is a matter of grave concern. And then given the gravity of this matter, Paul now turns to the matter of how elders are chosen in the first place. And here Paul offers three pieces of advice. First, choose elders slowly. Don't hurry the process. Look again at verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. So the laying on of hands speaks of the commissioning or the ordaining of an elder. I have on more than one occasion heard of people arguing against ordaining anyone. But it seems clear that the ordination of an overseer was a practice that began in the early church. Paul speaks about the elders who laid hands on Timothy. And now here, as key elders are rechosen in Ephesus, he again commends an ordination ceremony. 
It's a way of showing that this is a holy process and that the calling of a pastor is a solemn and sacred occasion which is intended to benefit the entire church. Because of the importance of leadership to the people of God, this is a matter that should require some time to complete. That is, there should be a process. See, I would argue that in today's terms, it should involve that the man of God has not only received proper training for the task, but that he's also served as an intern somewhere. His progress has been watched. You know, we should have in local churches ministers in training. The training process should do everything from watching the personal life of the person in question to seeing how he handles the word, how he relates to others, whether he safeguards his interactions with, you know, let's say attractive sisters in Christ, all of the above. I know of one denomination who in the process of ordination have a lengthy theological exam. The minister in training is called upon to outline a number of Bible books from memory showing that he understands the contents of key books of the Bible with ease. His doctrine is thoroughly examined to make sure that he is free of the tendency toward false teaching. Paul says, take your time. Now, the second half of verse 22, nor take part in the sins of others, keep yourself pure. The question of taking part in others' sins can be understood in two ways. First, it might be seen as a second command. That is, command one, don't lay hands quickly, and two, don't take part in other sins. But a second way of seeing this is that by calling our elder too quickly, before he's been tested and examined and observed, well, that would mean that if the elder sins and harms the church later, the ones who are too quick to make him an elder are responsible for or share in that sin. Their unwillingness to do due diligence and the harm that came as a result of it now falls on their plate. God holds them accountable. All the more reason to be slow and deliberate about choosing elders. What a wonderful bit of counsel this is. You see, some people will say, you know, well, we prayed about this elder and, you know, God seemed to direct it and we just went forward. And that's not how the Bible tells us to choose. Test them, watch them, watch their life, watch their doctrine, their marriage, their family, their victories and their defeats. Second, When elders are chosen, they are to be chosen courageously. Look at verse 23. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, you may wonder about verse 23. I mean, why is it there? I mean, some commentators read verse 23 and say, you know, Paul's simply injecting a personal note of concern for Timothy, and it's unrelated to the rest of the text. However, the more I spend time in Paul's writings, the more I'm convinced that he almost never does that doesn't get off track. I assume this verse has everything to do with how to choose elders. So let's look at verse 23 and find out what we notice. First of all, we notice that Timothy often isn't well. He has stomach problems, but he also has other health concerns. Secondly, we notice that Timothy's health problems probably have nothing to do with what he's eating, for when it comes to drinking, he's established a habit of drinking only water, no Diet Coke, no Jolt Colas, no coffee, no alcohol. But still his health problems persist. And finally, we notice why Paul prescribes a bit of wine. Not much, but just a little. It may be that Luke is with Paul, and as a physician, Luke has gained Paul's attention. Get him to take care of himself, he says. Get him to deal with his illness. Now, we can't be certain here, but it seems likely that the pressures of his ministry dealing with elders who were false teachers, dealing with disunity and criticism, strongly holding the line, it was not helping Timothy's health. And Paul counsels him. 
You have to take on false teachers. You have to demand accountability. You can't let that stuff go, but it will help if you look after your health. See, the point is this. Good leadership in the local church is always pressure-filled. It can lead to long working hours and high stress. And Paul is concerned that Timothy doesn't buckle under the stress, but instead that he remains firm. Now, thirdly, choose elders wisely. That's found in verses 24 and 25. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. There are, in fact, no secret sins. Some appear now, and some appear later before the judgment, but they all appear. The sins of some men are conspicuous. Everyone knows them, sees them. The sins of some people appear later, when an individual stands before Christ. The point is that the longer we're Christians, the more easily we hide our sins, and the better we are at appearing more righteous than we are, the better we are at playing the game. And all the more reason to choose elders wisely. It's as if Paul is saying, don't choose those who look good at the moment or good right now. Choose those who will look good in eternity. Be wise in the way that you choose. So elders who rule well, they are to be considered worthy of double honor. In the face of the immensity of the task, and all God's people must know how immense this task is. In the face of that, the task of leading God's people, it is important that the elder leads well and therefore provides an example of what godly life is to look like. Thanks so much for your message today, John. You know, I was thinking over time, there's really been this increased familiarity between lay people and elder and pastor, maybe to the point of devaluing the authority of the position. Should that be a concern? Yeah, I mean, I'm not arguing against having a church board, so please don't hear that. Um, uh, You know, there are a number of different structures that can be biblical. However, I do know that when you have lay elders, Lay elders are called upon to be ministers of the gospel. They are pastors. They are lay pastors. So make sure that you just don't, you know, hand out titles. And when you do so, it creates great confusion to God's people when we actually read the text. So if you're a lay elder, you're also called upon to be a minister of the gospel, ministering the word, teaching God's people, and doing the work of pastoral ministry. That is God's call. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Living the Truth, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry, well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone leaving you free from any obligation. So call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3315. That's 1-866-336-3315. 
or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult.